I hadn't planned on taking two weeks off from preaching uh, recently, just how the schedule worked out. But we had some delightful preachers in that time, didn't we? And Tammy did a phenomenal job last week. And, and we were starting this new sermon series that I only planned for two weeks. But quite honestly, Tammy already started it with grace last week, living, living from grace, not for grace last week, she said. So I'm considering that part really the start of the sermon series we're in, which was only going to be two weeks, so it's now three, and you've already gotten through one week of it. Good job, everybody. Uh, but Tammy did a phenomenal job last week. And, and I want to make a connection over these next couple weeks between three things. The first is grace, and I want to talk about that today. The second is the sacraments. I specifically want to talk about communion, and I'll make a connection with that today. And you might question my timing. You might say, Pastor Evan, we took communion last week, and we're not taking it for like another few weeks. Why are you bringing it up now? Well, partially it's how the schedule worked out, but partially I think it's good to digest it in between times. So we'll have two weeks where we get a, get a little time to think it through. And the third connection, so grace, communion, specifically of the sacraments, and children. Those three things are what we're going to look at. Children is going to come in as a much bigger theme next week, but grace, sacraments, and children. Let me give you a little reason why we're going to do this. A couple different uh, ways we'll, we'll talk about this. The first is, uh, there are a couple, there's a book I read when I was in youth ministry by Alvin Reed. Um, back when I was in youth ministry, see, I'm not a very good youth pastor, so I had to read a lot of books on how to do it. And uh, I love youth, I'm just not good at, at planning all the things that go into being a youth pastor. But I read this uh, book that was just a really, it's been a, a, a life changer in how I plan ministry in general. Because uh, Reed talks about, he gives a hypothetical story of two people. And I know I've told many of you this before, so bear with me. He talks about two high schoolers, makes up the story, but you can imagine the reality. He says you, you have one high schooler who is consistent every week. They're going to, every, yeah, week, they're going to youth group. Every time it's available, they're there but rarely are they involved in worship with the body of believers. And then you have uh, a student who's intermittently engaged with youth group, but they're at worship every week, committed, engaged. And sometimes our, our mark of success, which is really what he's getting at, our mark of success is that we plan something, an event, a program, and if we checked off the boxes of the attendance uh, and, and that people are there for everyone, we've, we've achieved success. But he asks, in this case, what happens when both of those students turn 18? One of them has a connection to the body of believers, and they, they can grow into that. And one of them, youth group ends. And that's the end. That's, that's it. And they often fall into the black hole. They're gone. They don't, they don't have that connection. So they either, can, they either have to work to make that connection or they just fade away when it comes to church life. He says, what's success when it comes to youth ministry? Is it that we got them to come to every event or that we got them to connect with the body believers and become worshiping adults who will glorify God in their lives, who will love Jesus Christ and love his church? What's success? And it's a great question, not just when it comes to youth ministry, it goes well beyond that. And so conversations like that are how we got to the point that we've been talking about, uh, and, and the congregation has voted at least to move forward on, on hiring a pastor of student ministries, right? Because that's a need that we have for some of those very reasons. I'm not preaching about the pastor of student ministries right now. I'm just bringing that up, that, that this is actually part of a broader conversation. And worship and music actually picked up another part of that very conversation of, of, of how we raise our kids, basically, in worship and as a church 
the worship and music ministry really is the reason that we're doing these next uh, two weeks on this issue. And, and some of you say, well, that's a lot of influence for one ministry. Well, get involved. Anybody can be. So join the worship and music ministry. But part of the question that we're looking at is, how do we do a better job of including our children in worship so that we can raise them up to understand the meaning of what it is we're doing and then become worshipers? That's part of the question that worship and music has been asking, and they, they've been talking about two elements uh, of worship uh, that we can bring in, actually, among others, to help. So, so you'll notice right now, if you even notice the order of worship that we have, we just dismissed kids for children's worship. That's okay. We had them in here for half of the worship service, and we're at a size where we can get away with it, right? Sometimes people criticize big churches because kids are never in the worship service, and certainly you have to plan so that there'll be times that kids get in the worship service. But based on size dynamics, if we were much bigger, security-wise, we just can't do that. You just can't be a bigger church and say, okay, 150, 200 kids. Now you can walk out and find your teacher for children's worship. That's a giant security issue, isn't it? As a parent, I'd rather have dropped them off if there are that many kids. In this size, we can get away with it. So that's size dynamics. Churches need to plan accordingly. But we have intentionally planned so that kids can be in here for as much of worship as possible so that they know that this isn't just divine playtime every Sunday but that they get to see what we do and maybe even participate. And even when they go to children's worship, if you know what's going on there right now, it's not just playtime. They're actually learning in an age-appropriate way what worship is and how they can be involved. And so we're, we're talking in worship and music about some things to include in worship that will help our kids in our congregation be raised to understand the meaning of what we do and eventually embrace it themselves. Two things that we're talking about. One is little banners uh, they've already got uh, play bags, but little banners that they can dance with and move with when we do the opening songs of worship. Now, let me make the caveat. These are not attached to a stick. That had to be clearly pointed out in our meeting, right? Because I have three kids, and I know you can weaponize just about anything, especially a stick. They're, they're, they'd be soft, and, and if you get hit with them, you won't. It's mostly a hand that you'd get hit with. You won't, they're not dangerous, generally. But the other thing that we've been talking about that has direct relation to communion and growing our kids into that is, is something that some churches have begun, which is serving grapes during communion for little kids, right? Because we don't want to be inappropriate in the one thing that Jesus commanded the church to do, take communion, the Lord's Supper together. But at the same time, we want to begin to give meaning to them and anticipate in children the day when they can participate themselves, right? In the covenant, we don't prescribe at what age a child can take communion, we say they have to make the choice to follow Jesus Christ. And that's a conversation that really has to happen between parent and child, more than church and child. And some kids choose earlier, some kids choose later. I see no biblical prescription on it's 8 or 12 or whatever age you want to pick out, or that is confirmation or whatever it is. Those might be great milestones and markers, but that might not be when somebody comes to mature or even the beginning of faith in Jesus Christ, where they can make the mature decision to follow Jesus. But what you have in the grapes, and I'll talk about this more next week, is the raw material, unprocessed, of what we have in communion. And we anticipate with our children the day when they can make that decision. Worship and music is, is, has chosen, let's try it out. That way, when kids come forward, I not only bless them, but they have a chance to participate and say, okay, there's something meaningful going on here. Taste and see the Lord is good. Let's raise you in the faith so that one day, you can join us in these elements.
that's what we're looking at right now are these next few weeks. But I want to ask a question, and, and we'll get into this a little more next week as well. What effect would the inclusion of children have on us, grown-ups? What effect would it have if a little kid is dancing in the aisle, and I'm perfectly okay with that, if a little kid is dancing in the aisle with a banner? What effect would it have if a little kid takes a grape and says, wow, what does this mean? And we get to explain it. What effect could that have on us, grown-ups, in the faith? One, I think it would help us recognize the place of grace in our own lives. And two, let's give this by way of example. You know, if you ever have an old dog, uh, and by the way, I just, in this example, called every one of us old dogs. I'm okay with that. If you have an old dog, and you introduce a puppy, what happens? They not only get a little agitated because the puppy's chewing on their tail, but they get a little excited too, don't they? They get a little more life in them. Can you imagine the effect on us if we actually work intentionally to continue to include children more and more in worship? Brothers and sisters, we're a little stuffy when we worship. Can you imagine if there are kids dancing in the aisles? Would that give us a different sense of freedom about what it means to worship together? Today, though, that gives us the background for what we're doing, and I'll give you a little more of that next week on children. I want to look at the issue of grace, and I want to put it in the context of communion specifically, but talk about the sacraments generally. And we'll try and make this as practical and simple as possible. So let's go to John 1, verses 11 through 14, and I want to just make this very first point that God's grace gives us the right to God's presence. God's grace gives us the right to God's presence. I'm so thankful for that. John 1, 11 through 14, when it says, He, it's Jesus. He came to that which was his own, but his own did not receive him, John says. Yet to all who did receive him, to those who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, children born not of natural descent, nor of human decision or husband's will, but born of God. The word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. We have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only Son who came from the Father, say it with me, full of grace and truth. Thanks be to God. That's how Jesus came, full of grace and truth. Not full of anger and wrath, but for you and me, out of love. Grace, when we talk about it, simply defined as the unmerited favor of God. That is, you and I did nothing that deserved this. In fact, we've done a lot that deserves the opposite of grace, haven't we? We don't deserve what we get from God, yet God gives us this favor, this grace. And when theologians speak of grace, they have a bunch of different uh, sort of qualities that you can find in scripture. Uh, They talk about common grace, efficacious grace. Uh, They talk about a number of them, Uh, but I want to talk about two. Um, In fact, I blanked on the third one. Good thing I'm not talking about it. So, the two that I want to talk about are common and efficacious. Big word, I'll define it in a moment, or at least give you an example. When it, when it comes to common grace, we have to recognize this first of all. Common grace is available to everybody at all times throughout the world. Right? This is God's continual care for everything God has created. None of us deserved it. You and I have breath in our lungs today, not because we asked for it, but because God willed it. 
We're able to sit and, and gravity holds us here, not because you and I asked for it, not because we put something in place that would make that happen, but because God willed it. That's common grace. That we're able to be here with breath in our lungs at all, with life in our body, blood in our veins. That's God's continual care of creation. Whether we asked for it or not, whether we recognize it or not, God continues to care for us. A great example passage of this is Hebrews chapter 1, verse 3. Uh, and, and right before this, we've just been told by the author of Hebrews that God created everything through the Son, through Jesus Christ. And, and Hebrews 1, 3 says, the Son is the radiance of God's glory and the exact representation of his being. And get this, sustaining all things by his powerful word. You can find other passages like this, where God continues to care for what he's created. Simply because he created it. He chooses to. He wills it. And so we have life, whether we realize it or not. There are other things you can put into that, uh, restraint of sin, other things like that that theologians would point to that you can find that, that show God's common grace to us. That is, it could be worse if God exited the picture or withheld his hand. But common grace is this grace that's available to all of us. And, and we should point out, though, that common grace is not saving grace. Just because we have breath in our lungs and life in our body does not mean that we are saved. We can have all of those things and not recognize God's hand in those. In fact, many people do, and they turn the other way. And they ignore it completely. Because we have this common grace, we're granted life and the opportunity to choose God and to choose what we've been given through Jesus Christ, which is the other kind of grace that theologians talk about, efficacious grace big word. That is God's saving grace. And this can take you down a path in those of you from reformed circles to irresistible grace. We're not going there this morning. Efficacious grace. It's God's grace that saves. Now the way that efficacy and efficacious tend to get used in, in our current day and age is more in the pharmaceutical industry. So you ask about the efficacy of a drug, right? Does the pill work or not? That's the question that's being asked. And does it affect the, the, all the things that we want or just part of those things? That's efficacy, the effectiveness. Does something happen, basically? Something changes with, with the introduction of this grace. And we get a picture of this in Ephesians 2. If you're following along, you can, you can flip there. Otherwise, the important verses will be on the screen. In Ephesians 2, we see the grace that affects something in us. When Paul's talking about the fact that you were dead in your transgressions and sins at the beginning of the passage. So this is people with common grace, right? You and me, we have life in our body, but he says, even with that, you're dead in your transgressions and sins. That is, the relationship that you could have with God is broken, and there's nothing you can do to fix it. And then you go to verse 4, and he says, here's how it gets fixed. He says, it is, uh, but because of his great love for us, God, who is rich in mercy, made us alive with Christ, even when we were dead in transgressions, it is by grace you have been saved. That's efficacious grace. That's a grace that does something once we've accepted it. To move us from being dead in transgressions, even though we're alive in body, to now being alive in Christ, which is really to thrive and live and, and embrace eternal life, the life that's truly life as we're told in Timothy. Now, the offer is made, but we have to take that offer to go from death to life. 
It's sort of like uh, we have one in our congregation who works very hard on your behalf to make sure that unclaimed property in the state of Nebraska is claimed, right? It's sort of like unclaimed property is what grace is. It's there waiting for us, but it's only collecting dust until we do something with it. It's only sitting in a bank account unless we do something with it. But it's there for us. Otherwise, without accepting that, the life that we have eventually will expire. And it's done. And we don't get to partake in the life that is truly life that we're offered through Jesus Christ, now and for eternity. It is by grace you have been saved. And Paul reemphasizes the point in verse 8. He says, uh, it is by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not from yourselves, it is the gift of God. You couldn't have done anything to affect this grace. It's only by God's hand that this is done. And so we see, if you, if you look back at John 1, 12, it says, he came, yet to all who did receive him, to those who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. And it wasn't by anybody's choice but God's. It says no human made this decision. No human father made this decision. It was only by God's choice. And so we recognize that grace comes through the word, through Jesus Christ, by God's choice. And brothers and sisters, we have to recognize something. We have breath in our lungs. We don't deserve grace. You and I, brothers and sisters, do not deserve grace. But you know what? The truth is we need it. We absolutely need it. And grace that is effective as our invitation to God's presence, without accepting that, we give up the family tie we have to God. We say, I don't want it. When it's being offered. Now let's make a connection from this grace that we're talking about then to the sacraments for a moment. Don't check out just because I said the word sacrament. I, I know this is not something we commonly talk about a lot, but hang with me. If you look through Christian history, you can see that uh, the number of sacraments has sometimes been not really so much a hotly contested point as just an unclear point at times. We recognize two sacraments in the covenant church, baptism and the Lord's Supper. Uh, you will find that if you go back to the late 300s A.D., because I know you do a lot, if you go back to the late 300s A.D. and look at St. Augustine, he named over 30 things that could have been called sacraments. So it wasn't exactly firm in how they defined it back then. If you go to the Middle Ages, you can see that eventually the Roman Catholic Church nails down seven that they call sacraments that had kind of traditionally been held on as sacraments. Uh, we're in the Protestant wing of the church, uh, specifically the evangelical umbrella of that. So we recognize two. There are some denominations out there who recognize three. They add washing of feet, and there are some who recognize none as sacraments. And then, of course, there are some who call them different things, and that's what I want to talk about for a moment. We recognize two, baptism and the Lord's Supper. But it's our understanding of the sacraments and where grace fits in that I want to talk about here for a moment. There are two different terms in, in sort of the Protestant world and, and wing of the church uh, that people use to talk about sacraments. Some say ordinance and some say sacrament. And let me just give you the quick, quick, quick difference between those two. And then we'll give an example. Um, an ordinance is merely a symbol. There's a chart that should come up here too. If you, that, it's eye chart, but you can at least get an idea. Uh, it, an ordinance is a symbol of God's grace. It falls on the, and you can think of this as an ordinance as from below, or actions from below, and a sacrament as actions by God from above, kind of in the, the really rough way of putting these at the far extremes, just as we talk about it. It's a symbol that's just 
pointing to something else. That's it. It represents something. It's the act of a believer. It's, it's a memorial of God's work. So we're simply remembering or marking something that God has done in history. It's a work of obedience on my part, and it depends on my heart how I come to baptism or the Lord's Supper or whatever it might be. Sacrament, in, in its basic, and then we'll add one extreme element, uh, is a sign of an inward grace. Sign and symbol, we won't go through that, but they're a little, little different in how you understand them. Uh, it's the present action of God. So God is presently active in the sacrament. Uh, we are receiving a gift. So think from above versus from below, action from human, action from God. Uh, and it depends on the grace of God uh, wholly, if you take it to its full extreme. In some traditions, not ours, in some traditions, uh, sacrament is actually, an, is actually an act of grace, it's, or, uh, God's bestowal of grace itself, or salvation itself in a sense. Uh, we don't believe that in the covenant, but, but you can find traditions where baptism of an, of an infant, for instance, eradicates original sin is the belief. We wouldn't say that. We baptize infants. That's not what we're doing. We're not eradicating original sin. We don't have that power, nor does the water have that power to do that. But for some of us, we live in an Americanized Christianity where we actually kind of tend towards a sacramental understanding of things, but we actually live it out as an ordinance. Let me give you an example. So we might clearly point out that it's God's work in me. It's an inner work of grace in me that I've come to salvation. That is grace coming down. I've received the grace that God offers to me. But when a believer is baptized, many of us approach it as simply a historical marker of something that already happened back here. So if we asked, where is God when baptism happens? Well, he's here, but all the stuff happened back here. Or the Lord's Supper. Sometimes we do that. Well, uh, uh, you know, yeah, God's here, but it's all stuff that we're, we're just recognizing that historically happened. And so we kind of sometimes have an ordinance view of from below, it's all about the matter of my heart, rather than a sacramental view of things, of, of where God is, and without even realizing it sometimes. I know this is a lot to take in. I'll move on from that for just a moment here, but, but let's just point this out. Uh, in the Middle Ages, before the Reformation, when in, in what would be Roman Catholic churches, when the priest would stand up, he would hold up the elements of, of communion, the host specifically, and in Latin say, hoc est corpus meum. I know that doesn't mean much to you, the body, right, of Christ. Hoc est corpus meum. Hoc est corpus meum. Now, some people had a, a superstitious belief that maybe it extended life when he held it up in the air. That wasn't church teaching. That was just a superstitious belief people had. But what's interesting, if you hear those words, and you can imagine that what happens out in the street during the week, this is just how it comes down to us in history. Historians have kind of tangled with uh, the truth of this, but this is how it's come down to us through history. That in the street, you have magicians and jugglers who hear these words and the superstitious uh, ways that people understand that. Hocus corpus meum, and what do you do if you're a street magician? Hocus pocus. Sounds similar, doesn't it? That's what many believe is the origin of that term. At its extreme, we can think of the sacraments as magical. They're doing something otherworldly in us. They're saving us because we take them, extending our life, whatever it is. At its other extreme, we can think of the ordinances as only something I do, marking historical events that already happened, but it's all about my work. Those are the extremes. And we have to figure out how to not make it hocus pocus, but not eliminate God's grace from the sacraments. 
Let me have a testimony here and a transparent pastor moment to bring you into a little bit more of this thought. Um, I've been here for three years, and God's been working in me for three years to not be anxious about what I do. I love what I do. Absolutely. I feel called to it. I love what I do. I love what I'm doing right now. I love the act of preaching. I understand the weight that comes with it, but I love it. Absolutely. I feel called to it. And God's been working on me over the past three years, and, and it's been, especially over the last few months, our schedule has had this, it's been weird. It's been wild. Um, we've had a lot of sickness in the house. I took on the commitment of teaching out at Resonate. And let me just tell you this, with the affirmation of our council and our pastor or staff relations committee, and I love it, and, and I think I should be there. It's changed my week, but I want to tell you this. Stephanie and I don't plan on going anywhere, unless you guys have different plans. We feel called to Lincoln. We feel like we're going to be here for a long time. If you're okay with that, thank you. All right, so we're not planning on moving, because we're just frankly tired of it, and we like you people. So we feel called here. But whoever you call in the future, if I do get called somewhere else, which I don't plan on getting called, everybody hear that, somewhere else right now, whoever you call should be involved at Resonate because half of those kids are from Lincoln and a lot of those kids will come back here. We always need that connection, just so that's out there. But I've loved being a part of Resonate, our discipleship experience out at Covenant Cedars. But it's changed my schedule and my week. So I, okay, that's fine. I can change that. But then we had this sickness going through the house, and it just keeps going through the house. It doesn't stop. So that changes my schedule. And I'm sorry if I haven't answered your emails in like three months. Uh, it's because my schedule changed. I haven't been able to keep up with that. But then this week was really a good test and, and a good moment where I had to recognize something about God's work in me. Uh, I had guest preachers for the last two weeks. I tried to really plan and plan ahead doesn't always work out like I would like to do. So Monday morning, I knew I had to go in for jury duty. I'd gotten summonsed. Okay, I'll do that. I'll do my civic duty, right? I get to do the other civic duty in just a matter of weeks, voting. So I go in, and after five hours, I didn't make the team. Don't challenge the defense attorney when you're up there, by the way. But I didn't like his interpretation. But I didn't make the team, came to work, got a couple hours of stuff done, nothing really substantive, small group, put the kids to bed, and then the day's kind of done by that point, right? My, men, my brain's gone. Next day, I wake up. Stomach flu hits the entire house. I am out. Tuesday was gone. There, I tried half an hour of work, and I said, There's, my body just said, you cannot do this. You just have to sleep, and I did. There was no other option. So two days are gone. Sunday, by the way, always comes, if you haven't noticed, every week at the same time. I've barely gotten anything done on a, on a sermon, which is looming in my mind. But I'm, I'm resolved. I had resolved at the beginning of the week I was going to remain calm. Wednesday, I had time to work. Okay, so I got some things put into place, but there's a lot of pressure when you try and do everything in one day. So I knew I wouldn't get it done in one day. No big deal. Thursday, I had half a day, and I had already committed to going out to this conversation on race at Bethlehem Covenant Church. That was the second entire half of the day, and it was wonderful, by the way, and that was a commitment I needed to keep. So by Thursday night, I'm anxious, and I can get anxious. I don't do well under stress. I was anxious when I tried all week not to be 
anxious. And it brings back the question God's been working in me for three years. Whose work am I doing? Whose work am I doing? Is it my work or is it God's work that I'm doing? Who's behind the effort that I'm putting forth? Is it my effort or is it God's effort? Whose power is working through me? Is it my power or should it be the power of the Spirit of the living God working through me? And I'm trying to rest on my own power the entire time. I can do this. I can do this. I can do this. Pushing God out further and further without even realizing it. Whose job is this? Whose task is this? Whose church is this? Whose ministry is this? Brothers and sisters, we can be fooled into thinking we're doing God's work without God. Into thinking we're doing God's work without the Spirit of the living God powering us. Ephesians 8 tells us it's, it's only by grace that you've been saved. It wasn't anything you did. It was God's grace that saved you and saved me. It wasn't me. In the evangelical covenant church, we say sacraments deliberately because we're leaning into God's grace at every turn, that the power of God is working through us, that the spirit of the living God is present in the body and the blood. It doesn't change into the body and blood of Christ literally. That's not what we're saying, but that God is with us, that God's grace is present, not simply as a historical event, but we're leaning into it. Of course we have to put in effort. Of course we have to make sure our heart's in the right place. We've got to receive that grace that's given to us. Let's look at one more passage of Scripture, and then we'll close. Uh, but as I say that, don't close your Bible after you're done, because it might not happen as soon as you think. So, first or Second Timothy, chapter one, verses nine and ten. It says, "He has saved us and called us to a holy life, not because of anything we have done, but because of His own purpose and grace." Thus, this grace was given us in Christ Jesus before the beginning of time, but it has now been revealed through the appearing of our Savior, Christ Jesus, who has destroyed death and brought life and immortality to light through the gospel. You may notice I haven't used any of the passages on the sacraments to talk about the sacraments. I'll bring one in next week. Don't worry, it's coming. But the sacraments reveal what this passage is telling us, God's work of grace and God's grace at work in us. That before we even knew it, that grace was there and present, and we're entering into that story through the sacraments. And that in participating together, we're letting God's work, God's spirit work through us as a people. We're recognizing all that Jesus' sacrifice meant. So let's look at communion specifically. Each month we take communion in the covenant, we break the bread and pour the cup. And when we do that, we are reminded that we can't manufacture God's grace. Now, it's, it's something we take hold of when it's offered. Each month, we break the bread and pour the cup. We're invited into God's presence through Jesus Christ. We're not sending out the invitations. We're RSVPing is what we're doing. It doesn't go the other way. We're invited into God's presence. Each month when we break the bread and pour the cup, cup, excuse me, we're called to accept a gift which costs our Savior dearly. Each month when we break the bread and pour the cup, we are brought into a relationship with Christ that will undo us and then remake us. 
in the image of Christ. And when you look at that meal, through the body and blood of Christ, Jesus gave everything. The Son of God came not to be served, but to serve. When you take that meal, what does it ask of us then? If we have a Savior who served, and we're supposed to be like Christ, what does that call of us? That we also are servants. That we also serve in the body of Christ. We serve one another, and we take the word out. We're asked to serve as Christ served. We are asked to become who Christ was through that. We are asked to become loving, kind, patient, gentle, righteous, meek, justice-loving. Just start going down the lists of the things we're supposed to be made into in the image of Christ. That's who we're supposed to be. To see God's grace at work in us as the people. And we recognize that every month we break the bread and drink the cup. We're making three connections here. Grace, sacraments, specifically communion, and children, which I'll bring in more uh, pronounced next week. It's all from that conversation with worship and music. Join a ministry, people. Worship and music. How do we do a better job of including our children in worship? We ask what effect would the inclusion of children have on us as a people, but let's just face it, we have to really ask the question of what are we showing our kids when it comes to God's grace in the first place? I'm not saying we're doing a bad job. I'm saying that's the question. What are we showing them? I have two stories, and actually I'm going to say there's a third story that I'm not going to tell, but it should be implicit, in that right now you have before you somebody who grew up in the congregation who's now your pastor. I hope that testifies to why we need to do this, why we need to make sure that we are being good models of God's grace. Let's start with the first story, and and they're on the shorter end. Um, Back when I was a kid growing up in this church, um, if you looked at that coat closet back there, uh, you can see that we had those wooden coat hangers uh, that are individually spaced, just perfectly spaced apart from each other so you can hang a coat, right? And you can put it up there. Well, we used to have, before we did the addition in the mid-90s here, uh, one long hallway over here that was kind of a dark hallway, a tiled hallway, you know, and it had that pop machine, if you remember, if those of you that were here, it was a bottle pop machine. You could buy the pop, you know, knock the, it had the little bottle opener on it. That was one of the coolest things to see, right? Those are a relic of the past. But it had the coat hangers down the entire hallway. Now, One of our associate pastors, who will remain nameless, we'll call him Tom for short, um, was, uh, I I had watched him, I'd watched many of you adults actually, I'd watched him going down the hallway, the whole way, because it resonated so well to hear those wooden coat hangers there perfectly spaced like a, you know, a little mark tree or something like that as you go down and knock them on and you hear this loud resonance of wood down the hall. It was super fun. So as a kid, of course, I watched other people do this, including this associate pastor. I remember walking down one day as a little kid, uh, tall enough to reach it, doing that, and an adult in front of me at the end of that, that walk, it's resonating through the hall. The only other adult in the area turned to me and said, well, that was unnecessary. Now, I was a little kid, and I had no idea what that meant, so I wasn't really too worried. <laughs> so when I found out what that meant, I was like, well, wait a minute. All the other adults I see do that. How is that unnecessary for me? We learn from what we see. Whether you want to admit it or not, brothers and sisters, we're teaching our kids. Whether you have kids or not, you're teaching them. 
what it means to be a grace-filled person, what it means to be a disciple of Christ sitting in worship and participating in the body of Christ. The other example I'll use, story I'll use from, is from when I was serving the last church in Colorado Springs. One of, the, one of our friends uh, called up Stephanie, actually, and told her the story. I think she eventually told me, too. Her little son was at home playing, and he was playing preacher and pretending to do communion, and he was pretending to be Pastor Evan as he did all this. Doing a great job, by the way. And, and it just, it, you listen to that, and you're, first of all, you're heartened, but then you say, he wants to know the meaning of these things, doesn't he? He wants to know, he's playing. That's how kids learn. He wants to know what these things mean. Our kids want to know what we're doing. They want to know if there's meaning, if there's something there for them. We are modeling to them grace or lack of grace at all times. And our kids are begging for an explanation. And I don't bring this up because I have kids. You saw this morning, I have three kids. I wouldn't trade them for anything. I don't tell these stories, and I don't bring up this sermon series, and worship and music isn't talking about this because some of us have kids. I bring it up because I was a kid, and so were you. And somebody took the time to teach us how to love Jesus Christ and his church. And that's our job, brothers and sisters, to model grace as God's people to our kids, to one another, to show them the meaning of grace as a people. Let's pray. God, thank you for your unmerited favor. We didn't deserve it. We don't deserve it. Yet you freely give it. And God, for those of us that are sitting here that are saying, I still don't feel like I deserve it, help us live from it, not for it. Help us not feel like we have to earn your favor. But help us recognize what it is to accept it to welcome it into our lives and let it work through us. That the characteristics that we have now would not be the characteristics we have a day from now, a month from now, and a year from now because we're changed in your image because the power of your spirit is working through us. Don't let us do this on our own. Send your spirit in this place. Send your spirit in our lives individually. God, and if anybody's feeling moved to receive you this morning, move them. And let us be a witness to that this morning, God. And when our kids come up from children's worship, God, let us get down their level and understand their world and what they're begging for us to teach them without them even realizing. Let us be models of your grace in our words, in our actions, in our interactions, in our comings and goings. May the words of our mouth be a blessing to you, God. Pray this in your name. Amen.